You are listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science as part of our Shaping the Post-Covid World series, a digested version of our live online public events. Environmentalism and Global International Society was recorded on the 23rd of November 2021. A full version of this event is available to download via the LSE events website or from your usual podcast provider. First, I want to introduce Dr. Robert Faulkner, the author of Environmentalism and Global International Society, the book that we'll be discussing today. Dr. Faulkner is an Associate Professor in the Department of International Relations at LSE. He's also the Research Director of the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and Environmentalism and serves as the Academic Director of the Trium EMBA Programme and a Distinguished Fellow of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. I'm delighted to welcome Robert here this evening to discuss this important, provocative, and powerful book. Next, I want to welcome Professor Catherine Hostetler, Professor of International Development and the head of the Department of International Development here at LSE. Next, I'd like to welcome Stephen Bernstein, Professor Stephen Bernstein joining us on Zoom. Professor Bernstein is a Distinguished Professor of Global Environmental and Sustainability Governance at the University of Toronto. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science there and co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And finally, Professor Barry Buzan is an Emeritus Professor of International Relations at LSE and formerly the Montague Burton Professor here. I want to hand over to Dr. Robert Faulkner and then we'll hear from Kathy, Stephen and Barry in turn. I want to kick off by giving you a brief overview of the book. But before I do that, let me start with a few remarks about the COP26 meeting. Uh, it creates a huge interest in the global green agenda, in government, in business, and in society. The pledges that governments made are just not good enough to get us to 1.5 degrees, as scientists tell us we need to. So given the urgency of the climate crisis, I think it's fair to say that this was a rather mixed outcome that we got from such a high-profile international diplomatic event. So what are we to make of this? States invest a lot of energy and effort into events such as this COP, and yet they often produce such disappointing results. Why are we not seeing faster, more determined action to avert the global climate and broader environmental crisis? Is this just a case of symbolic politics, perhaps political hypocrisy, as some of the critics would argue? Or is there a more complex story unfolding in the background? So in a way, my book tries to provide at least some answers to these questions. And I do so by stepping back from the sound and fury of international diplomacy. I dive deep into the history of environmentalism and I try and understand how environmentalism itself has become part of the normative structure of international diplomacy and of international relations. So let me give you a quick overview of the book. Here are the three central questions that I try to address. One, is environmentalism a fundamental norm of global international society? Two, if so, as I shall argue, when and how did environmentalism emerge as this fundamental international norm? And three, to what extent and in what ways has environmentalism then had an impact on the structure of international relations, international society itself? This is both about developing a historical account of the rise of environmentalism in international relations, but also an analytical perspective, an account that seeks to explain 
the transformation that we have seen. And it therefore engages with social theories of IR. I argue in the book that environmentalism has emerged as a fundamental, I call it a primary institution of international society. This is referred to as environmental stewardship from now on. This has actually become universally accepted around the world. But then its socializing effect on states is rather more limited. And I argue in the book that it has a much stronger effect in terms of the procedural uh, dimension of international relations. States feel compelled to engage in multilateral negotiations, but then when it comes to the substantive side, do they actually implement what they pledge and negotiate? And finally, I also find that although well-established now, environmental stewardship has not yet become systematically relevant to international society. Unlike, say, sovereignty, it doesn't yet decide whether states can claim to be legitimate players, rightful members of international society. I think we're all familiar with international institutions, so normative construct that exists at the level of what is known in English school theory as secondary institutions. So on the environmental side, we've seen a proliferation of these so-called secondary institutions. Beneath that level are what the English school calls primary institutions. This is a term that Barry Guzan himself described as deep and relatively durable social practices, evolved more than designed. And the argument is that environmental stewardship is now one of those alongside sovereignty, law, diplomacy, international law. The important point for our conversation is primary and secondary institutions interact in important ways. The creation of secondary institutions, the hundreds, thousands of treaties that have been created, they reproduce primary institutions. So we know about the strength of the underlying environmental norm because we can observe institution building. But these secondary institutions also become then sites of contestation. So states fight over the meaning of environmentalism when they negotiate at COPs. Just briefly on the history of environmentalism, I spend a few chapters on this. It all started really in the modern era with the Industrial Revolution, which changed the way in which humanity related to the natural environment. This is a domestic story. Environmental norms grew out of domestic debates, out of philosophy, literature, ethics, religion. But in my book, I argue that there's also an important international context to this, especially the colonial era. Empire played a big role in the creation of environmental knowledge. And so in the 19th century, different types of environmental thinking and knowledge and activism emerge, both colonial and anti-colonial environmentalism. It is then in the late 19th century that the first environmental movements spring up in the form of conservation groups, in, mostly in Europe and North America. But that doesn't get us very far yet. This is still an elite project, mostly middle class, upper class, aristocratic. States, therefore, throughout the 19th and 20th century respond with fairly limited policy interventions. And it is then in the 60s and 70s, environmentalism goes mainstream, becomes a mass movement, and critically becomes electorally salient. There's also a parallel story of how environmentalism enters the international realm. I've traced this back to the beginning of the 20th century. This is perhaps a slightly forgotten history. And interesting enough, the first proposal for a World Conservation Conference was proposed in 1909 by the Roosevelt administration. The proposal was never followed through and it never happened. Instead, we get to a conference in Bern held by various uh, European great powers in 1913. And interesting enough, 
the first ever international environmental body is created, the Consultative Commission. In fact, most of the attention shifted to the League of Nations. And at the Paris Peace Conference, there was some lobbying by environmental campaigners to establish an environmental mandate. The great powers felt that this was not their business, not their responsibility, and this didn't happen. And the same repeats itself in San Francisco, 1945. The great powers again reject any calls for taking on environmental tasks. So the big constitutional moment, therefore, happens only in 1972 at the Stockholm Conference, the first United Nations Environmental Conference, which then establishes the duty of all governments is the protection of the environment. And from then onwards, environmentalism makes its way into the normative structure of international society. So what kind of normative transformation are we talking about? The English school, the theory that I employ in the book, gives us some conceptual language to talk about this. The two key terms here are solidarism and pluralism. I think it's fair to say that most environmentalists are broadly in the solidarist camp. So there's a, a logic of cooperation at work, whereby the Society of States is asked to develop deep forms of cooperation, institution building. But then the, the process of solidarization of international relations in a green fashion has stalled. We've created treaties, but we've not found a way to make sure that they are implemented. Some say the international system is heading, if anything, away from a solidarist future towards a more pluralist future in which a diversity of values, interests, and norms prevails. What fate does environmentalism face in this environment? The argument that I developed suggests that it is still possible to imagine a world in which states come together at a very minimal level to deal with the common fate that faces them, particularly around climate change. This would be a logic of coexistence rather than cooperation. So where does the non-state world take us in this, if international society is perhaps not delivering? Well, I've argued it is indeed world society, the domestic and transnational context of societal debate that have generated environmental norms. This is a case of norm transfer from world society to international society. There is a solidarist component in world society. Much of the environmental movement is pushing in that direction. But I note in the book that world society itself is characterized by pluralist divisions. There's indeed deep normative contestation, north, south, east, west, over this. And if anything, the sort of integration between world and international society is still far off. So in short, the greening process has happened. International society has greened, but it's been an awfully slow process. If you measure it by the pace of change in international relations, it's been a record uh, uh, success. If you measure it by the demands of the global ecological crisis, it's been a painfully slow, probably too slow process. Thank you, Robert. So I'll turn now to Kathy. I think the most important thing I can say to you is that if you are interested in a history of the environmental movement that really, or environmental politics at the international level that really does start with the prehistory, I can't imagine a better book to read that in. And it's history to a theoretical purpose, asking the question, how do we know that a norm has taken hold? Trying to figure out if a norm is actually held, and if it is held, how it came to be held. And I think one of the great virtues of this book is that it lays out quite an explicit agenda of what should we see 
if we want to say that in fact states have accepted a norm of environmental protection, what are the ways in which we see that? And where do we see that the norm hasn't taken hold? Where are the limits? And so when we say that a norm has taken hold, we want to see that reflected in institutions, but we also want to see it in state behaviors, in the things that they do. And so, um, and this is something, and I'm now really talking about these last 50 years since that constitutive moment. And, you know, it's pretty recent really. And that's why he says that this is a pretty fast process of taking on a norm. There's just this rush of writing of multilateral environmental treaties. But maybe even more than that, there's the way that this begins to make its way into other areas of international relations. He's also documenting the way that leadership changes over time. There's no big hegemonic leader that's imposing some kind of agreement on everyone else, but you do see leadership mattering at one point, it's my home country, the United States, and then the United States very much drops out um, in the 1990s and the European Union begins to rise as a leader. And then one of the parts of the book that I find the most interesting is the way that this whole process becomes really more truly global so that it passes on to a set of developing countries as well. And one of the nicest parts, I think, of this historical section is talking about the way that the environmental debate itself had to change. It had to take on more fully ideas about the ongoing importance of development as well, that you had to join that environmental norm with a development norm and think about how those things fit together. One of the things that I personally found most interesting was the way that this history also acknowledges some of the limits of that take of the, of the norm. Repeatedly, states took up the idea of like creating a meaningful international institution to deal with environmental issues, and they repeatedly chose to create weak international environmental institutions. And probably the most depressing part of it is where Robert runs through a series of quite important environmental norms, more specific norms, like the norm about polluter pays, and says, actually, when you look at what states have done in the international system, those norms turn out not to be very fully realized and not very fully taken on one of the real contributions of this history is how clear-eyed it is. It gives us a very clear story about achievements, but at the same time, it gives us an equally clear-eyed story of the limits of those achievements. Thank you, Kathy. I'll turn over to Stephen on Zoom now. Robert is one of a relatively small set of global environmental politics scholars who directly engages with the field of international relations. So this is a really, I think, big book. Um, not only does it have something to say about the treatment of environmental issues internationally, but about the transformation of international politics or the potential transformation as a result. I'm going to focus my remarks mainly on the book's argument about what kind of norm environmental stewardship is and how it contributes to understanding change in both international order and addressing international environmental problems. So there's two central questions that I, I'm going to talk about in that regard. First, what kind of norm is it? 
And second, is it a strong or weak norm in supporting the needed politics to fulfill its purpose? So on the first question, uh, Kathy's already sort of mentioned this, I think the book is excellent. Um, not because it gives a definitive answer of what kind of norm it is, but because it doesn't shy away from exploring the enormous amount of normative contestation that swirls around the fundamental acceptance of environmentalism as an entrenched, legitimizing, even constitutive norm of global order. I'd even go a little further than Robert, who I think has been a little too influenced when he was writing the book by the Trump era, the backlash and anti-environmentalism, the populism, and how this perhaps is threatening the norm of environmental stewardship. I would argue actually that it, in fact, it's become completely normalized. Opposition to it is simply seen as inappropriate. The second question is a tougher one. Um, that is the question of the strength or power of the norm. On the one hand, um, the book doesn't pull any punches. It recognizes that despite the spread and entrenchment of environmental stewardship, global international society has, to quote the book, not managed to curtail, let alone reverse some of the worst forms of environmental degradation, climate change and biodiversity loss being amongst the most dire, but we could talk about many different environmental problems. So. Is it a norm that exists, to put it maybe a little less diplomatically than Robert does in the book, and I'm quoting Haley Stevenson here, is it a norm that exists, quote, in an age of bullshit? Ultimately, I think that uh, Robert's very cautious, and he said this earlier about the norm's transformative potential, which raises a question of whether we can really view it as autonomous from other primary institutions or, it's, or on equal footing. The last section of the book, tries to answer this question, and it spends a lot of time talking about whether there's been a kind of move from pluralist to a solidarist model on the one hand or toward a more globalist world society on the other. Um, one of the big takeaways for people who read this book who are you know, interested in this question is that it provides a deeper structural context to debates in the literature that have been around for a, a bit around complex, multi-level, multi-scalar or polycentric global governance. Finally, just on this point, I think through the lens of the book and the analytic frame, some people reading it might be a little frustrated in trying to answer the core question of how much the norm uh, matters. Um, what the book does do is provide us with a macro theory of change and continuity to contextualize and assess the possibilities of such transformation. And there, I think it's a major accomplishment. So congratulations, Robert. Um, and uh, again, I'm really glad to be a part of this celebration. Thank you, Stephen. And I'll turn now to Barry. My tail end Charlie role here, I think, is going to be uh, I want to look ahead a little bit. I think uh, an interesting way in the English school uh, framing of seeing how influential a new norm is, is, is to look at the way in which it impacts on and interacts with the other existing uh, primary institutions of international society, of which there are quite a few. Environmental stewardship. Uh, primary institution has already made uh, a substantial impact on a number of other uh, institutions. Uh, I think there are three kinds of challenges that it poses to the, uh, the other primary institutions. Uh, the first one is the challenge of sustainability. And my sense is that this challenge is already quite well underway and it's impacted on two, uh, the two institutions, development uh, and the market, if you, if you want to think of that as, a, as an institution that really the shift, certainly the rhetorical shift, and to some extent, um, never mind all the greenwashing, but to some extent, the actual shift towards sustainable development is quite real. 
people take this seriously now. That isn't question that development has to be uh, uh, sustainable development. The market has to reassess how it calculates costs and, and profit. It's got to factor in the environmental consequences. And that's clearly beginning to be the case. The second challenge uh, is about globalization, basically. We're very used to thinking about globalization largely in terms of the global economy. That form of globalization has been taking a fairly severe battering uh, of late. But in a sense, environmental issues, particularly global warming, are creating a new kind of globalization, right? a shared fate globalization. And this, it seems to me, is changing the meaning of globalization. It's quite easy to imagine that uh, the current trend towards economic nationalism will continue for some time. Uh, but while that's happening, I think globalization in terms of uh, environment, and particularly climate change, is going to be getting stronger. And this form of globalization, if it gets stronger in that way, is going to challenge the various fragmenting institutions uh, in, in international society. I'm thinking here of sovereignty, of nationalism, of territoriality. The third challenge is, I think, to do with management. I think the environmental stewardship is already beginning to have an impact on the institution of human equality. And global environmental pressures are raising new concerns about different degrees of vulnerability amongst people in different parts of the world about different degrees of ability to adapt. It's also beginning to affect, I think, the institution of great power management. I'm thinking ahead about how this might, might work. If, as some of you have argued, you know, the COP process and the diplomatic side of, uh, of environmental stewardship is too little, too late, even though impressive in some ways in itself. The alternative at the other end of the spectrum is anybody and everybody going off unilaterally to do their particular geoengineering project the middle ground there would be a group of great powers agreeing on what kind of uh, geoengineering they might do together. If environmental stewardship gets stronger, uh, then it, it has a good chance of becoming the core institution uh, of global society. If it doesn't succeed, then the gathering consequences of global climate change will force big changes into uh, the structure of international society. So either way, uh, environmental stewardship is the big story of the day here. Uh, and I agree with the other commentators that if you want to get uh, a best up-to-date take on this, then start with Robert's book. Thank you for listening. You can find our latest events via our Twitter at LSE Public Events and like our Facebook page at LSEPS. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website www.lse.ac.uk forward slash events.